Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys and why they choose a career in managing other people's money. We also discuss how they manage their own money, which is sometimes different to their professional styles. And the idea is to find a few tips and tricks to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Ian Power. He's the Chief Investment Officer and a Senior Fund Manager at Truffle Asset Management. He has been with Truffle since 2010 and uh, before joining Truffle he was at RMB Asset Management for 16 years. So he has been in the business for nearly three decades. Ian, thanks so much for your time today. First of all, give us a bit of background about yourself. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world? Thanks, Drake, and thanks to everyone who's listening. So I sort of grew up on the West Rand. Probably many of your listeners have never heard of the place, Krugersdorp. It was a mining town, so I suppose to... You know, one would have seen what you've typically seen in many of South Africa's mining towns in the 70s and the 80s when, you know, I guess the mining industry was uh, at much, much better levels, certainly in terms of, I guess, the investment that we were seeing in mining and I guess all of the revenues that the whole sector was sort of generating. So, I mean, that's sort of where I come from. And from an investment perspective, I suppose it's been a interesting journey for me. I first got interested in investing when I was at school, in high school, and, you know, started to try and learn about what was really involved and started to sort of speculate or, I guess, get exposure to the stock market, visited the stock market many times. And I mean, I was always intrigued by the capital markets and it sort of took over from there. And I went to university and got a formal education. It was then called Rao. They had a great business, I guess, department, accounting and investment business department. And yeah, from there, then I got my first job at RMB. Since then, I haven't looked back. Did you invest while you were still at school? I did invest. I did invest when I was at school. And I mean, I entered a competition and through our school as well, there were those competitions where I think the schools would, you know, form teams and you would compete against other schools. And I remember, I don't think our sort of team won, but I think we certainly did well and it sparked an interest. And I think, you know, the flame then just got burnt burnt brighter and brighter can you remember what the very first share was which you bought yeah my first share that i bought was a platinum company and it was called leboa platinum and it was one of these penny stocks you know the most dangerous thing for an investor is to buy something and it goes up and then you suddenly think you've got skill and you make a little bit of money and then you know that can be a dangerous thing so I think it was an interesting purchase and it went up and then it went down a lot. (laughs) So I think you learn a lot. And, you know, it was, I guess, at a time in my life when I was very, very young and wanting to sort of 
get some exposure to a story and you know the story was the catalytic converters that were necessary to deal with the emissions and obviously these are cyclical companies but yeah that was my first purchase those first purchases are always interesting because you remember them i bet you won't be able to remember what your third fourth and fifth investments were no but going back to that first investment we have many many listeners who are young they are earning money they get a bonus and sometimes they really want to put that bonus to work and enter the investment world they open typically an account with a stockbroker and they're very excited and then they need to make that very first investment can you maybe just give us some advice of how do you approach it because it's different to having a portfolio already how do you think young people should approach that first investment so i think the first thing that a young person should do is to really i guess understand that the need for them to invest so i think that's probably the most important thing is for them to actually realize that the sooner you start investing the sooner you benefit from you know, the massive benefits that compounding can generate over long, long periods of time. So I suppose my first bit of advice would be perhaps not actually about what companies or how to do it, but actually just get a proper investment plan and you start as soon as possible. And even the smallest amount of money over these long periods of time, you know, compounds and really does put you in a position where it can change your life and give you less worries and concerns and more flexibility in your later life when you've then had the benefit of earning returns on your returns over a long period of time. So I'd say that's like the first thing is to say, listen, try and take 25% of your income or 20% or whatever you can afford and you put it away. And, you know, I would say two things. I'd say the first thing is to access our unit trust market and, you know, typically we've got a highly developed, well-developed unit trust market with great asset managers. And I would say young people can either build a portfolio of different asset managers and even include some passive indices in that as well. And then really stick to that and then don't deviate from your savings plan and just leave it alone. I would say that's probably the best advice that I could give them in terms of starting to save. Can I interrupt you there? Many young people would say, listen, unit trusts are for old people. I want to go directly into the the new Capitec and the new Nuspers, and hopefully I can make a lot of money because I'm still young and I can afford to make mistakes early on. For sure. So this is what I'd say. I'd say you take your savings. Let's say you're saving 100 rand every month and take 80 rand of that and you put it into a basket of either indices or unit trusts managed by you know some of the professional managers and then that 20 I would put aside and you could use that as your learning money in other words this is the money that you're going to use to invest in those companies that you know you look at and where you think you can then I guess, make a difference or perhaps take higher risk outside a more diversified portfolio, you know, in the goal of further understanding what investing is about. And then secondly, as you said, in the hope of, you know, buying into some companies that deliver really above average returns or great returns over time. You know, as you said, hoping to get the capi ticket one rand fifty and it goes to, you know, sort of three, four hundred rand. I think the all-time high was over 2,000 rand. 
Correct. It's been probably one of the best investments ever in the world. How did your investment strategy evolve from the early days when you started at Rand Merchant Bank until today, where you are responsible, for example, for the management of people's retirement money? Did it change significantly over the years? Rake, so I think what you do, like in any sort of career or job, is you obviously learn a lot. And I had the benefit of really learning at the knees of some of South Africa's great investors. We had lots and lots of knowledge. And, you know, lots of those lessons I was able to learn from them and, you know, rather than experiencing them myself. So I think, you know, the whole objective of building a diversified portfolio of companies which are trading at discounts to what they're worth, I think was really entrenched in my psyche from the beginning. And then trying to, you know, really trying to get your own psychology under control, which is often one of the biggest challenges that you will know investors face, is that not everyone has the stomach to be a good investor because we're all human. And, you know, humans are only alive today because they didn't go out of the cave in the dark at night and they sort of clustered together. So, you know, typically when there are dangerous signs or signals, we all tend to react together in the same way. And often that's contrary to what you actually need to do when you're building a portfolio or when you're looking to deploy capital, because you often only get good opportunities when there's bad news. You don't get bargains when companies are generating great news and, you know, when there's typically lots and lots of optimism about a sector or a share or a theme. I mean, generally, the returns associated with that are typically low. And, you know, the biggest returns are normally made when times are tough and when, you know, everyone's almost given up hope on a particular company, a country or, you know, a stock. So I think that's probably the biggest piece, which is difficult to learn. I think the actual theory and understanding about how one values a business and, you know, you're buying into this compounding machine and you're getting this series of cash flows over time. I think that's all reasonably easy to understand. I think the difficulty comes in when you're in the hot seat and inevitably the cycle turns down or something unfortunate happens to a company and, you know, things come under pressure, you you start fighting against your sort of psychology as investors do. So I think that's the piece that you evolve over time is you start to become more resilient to the noise and, you know, also then puts you in a better position to react to these opportunities when things are bombed out or equally when the news is so good and people can only see the good news continuing to be able to sort of react to that. Let's talk about your personal investment approach. Do you have a discretionary investment portfolio? No, so I've got some unit trusts, a whole portfolio of unit trusts, which I have. And I mean, typically, you know, exactly what I said to you, it's about following the long-term plan. And also that enables us to sort of concentrate on managing our clients' money, knowing that those funds that I've bought or those indices are doing what they're doing over time. And then, you know, just continuing to buy into that over a period of time. But it would be diversified, you know, following all the same principles that we do when we manage our clients' money. But you're outsourcing that to the extent that giving the capital to other managers. Obviously, we also invest in our own funds. Some of those funds would be our own funds. So we sort of eat our own cooking. 
But I mean, obviously, some of the SA investors also invest offshore. And to the extent that I've done that, I've got uh, investments in some offshore unit trusts. In this podcast series, we speak a lot about portfolio size, especially when it comes to equity or shares. And I think there's a I don't know if it's a consensus, but a guideline that a portfolio should consist of around 8 to 12 shares and it should be diversified across many sectors and geographies. But how should you approach a unit trust portfolio? What is a good number, according to you, to have in your portfolio? And how do you prevent a situation where you are over-diversified? So I think what you want to do is you want to get enough diversity, but you also want to try and get... A selection of ideas where the outcomes are almost independent from each other. So, I mean, if you think of an idealistic world, you know, when one's managing money or you're building a portfolio, if you can get like 20 to 30 ideas, which are all very attractively priced, but the correlations of those outcomes are uncorrelated to each other. I mean, that's your sort of first prize because often what you'll find is even though you might have you know, let's say 20 or 30 shares, a big grouping of those will behave the same and get affected to the same degree under certain conditions. And I think that can be a challenge for people managing money and, you know, certainly professionals as well as individuals is then trying to build a portfolio that is actually resilient and is actually robust and gives you the diversification that you would expect when you've got all those names. And I mean, you would know, Rake, that when some shock comes or something happens, you know, pretty much all those shares tend to go down at the same time. You know, that really trying to think about diversification in a different way and perhaps create a portfolio that has more resilience when those risks manifest. So I think, you know, just saying that you're going to have between, let's say, 15 and 30 shares that in itself does not give you diversification because those shares could all be dancing to the same song. And it's all about, you know, finding ideas which are attractively priced but are uncorrelated to each other and building a portfolio like that. And that is much harder to do. And I think, you know, that's where we spend a lot of our time and energy. I think that's an excellent point. How do you approach bad performing investments because many asset managers and professional investors say don't become emotional, don't take emotional decisions. But how do you approach a bad performing investment? So I think the first thing is to have the intellectual honesty to recognize when you made a mistake. I mean, all asset managers make mistakes. And I think that's something that you need to recognize. And the reality is that A lot of the asset managers have skill, but it's not perfect skill. So what does that mean? It means if we had perfect skill, I would buy the share that's going to do the best in the market for the next year. And I only have to have one share because I've got this perfect skill. So I find the best one and I put everything into the best one. But you can't do that because we don't have foresight. So you have to build this portfolio. And inevitably, you're going to get hopefully more of them right than you get wrong. And that will generate the superior returns or certainly the index beating returns that our clients are looking for. So, you know, to the extent that you don't have perfect skill means that when you get something wrong, you've got to then reflect and say, okay, first of all, you must recognize you've got something wrong. So what does it mean to get something wrong? So let's say, for example, you buy into a stock and you expect it to compound at 15% per annum, 
and the stock is currently giving you a 5% dividend yield and it's growing its earnings at 10% per annum. So if the stock doesn't do anything, in other words, the share price doesn't go up, but it continues to grow its earnings, it means it's becoming cheaper. It means it's PE or the price you're paying to access those cash flows is falling every year. That doesn't mean to say you've got that call wrong. It just might mean that, well, everyone else hasn't recognized that this business is in fact still growing its cash flows. It's paying its dividends, but it's not being reflected in the multiple, particularly if the multiple that you paid was not an expensive price to get onto that bus. So there you can look at your base case and your assumptions and you can say, well, you know, the company's still delivering on the profit growth that I thought. And if you bought into this business at an appropriately cheap price, at some point, the market's going to be efficient and you're going to start to see the rating pick up and you should get your return of, let's say, the 5% dividend plus the 10% earnings growth over time, which should give you a 15% sort of compound annual growth rate. So their timing is something that becomes tricky in assessing whether you've got something wrong because often it takes time for people to recognize some of the value. But where you can admit where you've got something wrong would be, for example, if you're expecting that same business to grow their earnings by 10% per annum. And for the last 18 months or two years, they just haven't been able to do that. And they're struggling to do that. And that the outcome or the basis that you invested on this business or the profit drivers to generate the earnings growth look as though they're not there. Then you need to sort of reflect and be able to say, listen, we've got this wrong. And the most important thing you can do then is to acknowledge that and then exit that investment and rather put that capital to work in better ideas. So one of the big, I think, problems that investors can often have is they'll buy something and then it'll end up not doing well. And they'll sort of have this sort of view that, well, hold on, I've lost some money here or it hasn't done anything and I'm just going to hang on to it in the hope that it does but not really looking at the fundamentals and recognizing that the reason why you bought it was different to what you're experiencing and hence you should make a change. I often get the question from young investors that they start the investment journey with a 10-year goal where they would like to build a nest egg for when they want to buy their first house, for example. Say you have only two investments in your portfolio. One is an excellent performer and the other one is a really poor one. It has really underperformed. If you want to liquidate a portion of the portfolio, do you sell the winner or the loser? Well, I think you go back to exactly what I said. I think you've got to get to the conclusion. Is the poor performance or the dog just a function of the stock getting cheaper and the market not reflecting the value? Or has this been a poor investment choice? If it's been a poor investment choice, you sell it and you move on. And, you know, I mean, inevitably, I think you are going to have those in a portfolio where you've made mistakes and you need to be able to then, you know, recognize that and then move on. So always at the end of the day, you've got imagine this list of shares in your portfolio and you're comparing the the intrinsic value of the share to the current share price, and that gives you an expected return. And as long as your expected returns are still decent, you can continue to hold those shares, and uh, you should hold those shares over time. And just like investors often don't cull their losers or where they've made mistakes in their portfolios, they are also often guilty of selling some of their winners too soon. And I mean, you use the example of like a Capitec, 
Now, I mean, there's a great example. You could have made, you know, 100, 200, 300% on your money. And, you know, you could have made a multiple of that had you just then stuck to, you know, the reason why you bought this company, you like it, you understand it, you think it can grow, and you let that thing run, you know, rather than get sort of drawn into the more short-term noise. Then lastly, what has been your best investment ever in your personal capacity? Which investment have you been the most proud of? Mm, I think, you know, I mean, there's been many and I suppose, you know, there's lots of shares which when we've bought for our clients, we've made, you know, four, five, six, seven X. And I remember the first one, I mean, I'll give you an example of one. I remember when MTN initially listed, I was running a, a small cap portfolio, which focused on these small and emerging companies. And the company was called MCell. And they came to us and they said, listen, here's an opportunity for the corporate market. We think, you know, that the size of the addressable market's probably like 80 to 150,000 corporate executives for cell phones. And they issued those shares at one rand. That was MTN. And, you know, your example of sort of Capitec, there are many examples of that. And investors always have that hope of getting onto a massive growth company at a very early stage and I think there are cycles when you are able to do that and to be able to do it successfully and I mean I've experienced a few of those as well and then also in the resources space I mean if I sort of think back to the platinum stocks some of the gold shares some of the mining shares where they've gone up sort of 10x over a period of time. So, I mean, those would be great investments. And I mean, you know, they deliver a lot of return. But I think more importantly is, you know, like your Capitec example or, you know, perhaps uh, something which grows and takes a much bigger share of the market over decades. I think those can be very, very rewarding. But they require rake patience. You know, and they require you to be able to put the money aside and, you know, obviously look at it from time to time and make sure that everything is on track and let that thing compound then over time. So I think that would probably be the most rewarding, I would say. And the worst investment you've ever made? The worst investment, we had some exposure to Steinoff, you know, in hindsight, even though I guess there was fraud and all of the stuff, it just reminded me that your best efforts in terms of, you know, trying to assess value and get a sense of, you know, what the upside looks like, there's always that potential of fraud, of misrepresentation, and takes you back to the, you know, what we said at the beginning of the discussion, which is you need a diversified portfolio. So, yes, I mean, it was not crippling for our clients at all, but we did have an exposure to that, and it was, you know, certainly a difficult time, I think, also for the SA investment community but just reminds us that not everything that you see is what it is. And, you know, we need to be circumspect, we need to be cynical, and we need to be vigilant. So I think, yeah, that was probably the the most disappointing for me. I think many professional investors were in the same boat because it was a very popular <laughs> share and that board spoke a good game. But anyway, Ian, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights. 100% rake and thanks for the invite and yeah, thanks to everyone who listened to the call. That was Ian Power. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Truffle Asset Management. Show me the money. <laughs> 
That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.